welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. My name is Elizabeth Stevens. I'm finishing my last year in the integrated program at Columbia, and it's my privilege to interview Dr. Irving Crone. Many already know Dr. Crone, but he was AETS president in 2010 and has been a leader in the field for many years, becoming chief of the Division of Thoracic Cardiovascular Surgery in 93 and then chairman of Department of Surgery in 2002. Today, I'd like to focus on what our audience can learn from you as surgical scientists and in terms of mentorship. Welcome, Dr. Crone. Thank you. So for many years, you have been able to successfully juggle a busy clinical practice and a productive lab. For our listeners, can you describe your approach and insight into the development of a successful clinical practice and productive research, as well as how those have changed over the course of your career? First, what motivated you to become a surgical scientist? Well, you know, I just don't know how you separate looking after patients as well as looking, doing research. We wrote an editorial a little while back that basically said, from bedside to bench and back again. And the point is, is we as surgeons see the problems firsthand. We see them in the operating room, and we tend to be tinkerers. We like to solve things. And so it's kind of fun to be able to go back and try to solve something and then reapply it to the patient. When, you're, when you do an individual operation, it's fantastic. You take care of a patient, you do one person at a time, and it's terrific, and you, and you affect a certain amount of people. But if you actually do research, then you can affect thousands of people. And when you teach people to do what you do, you, you affect that many more. So it's a, it's, a, it's a true privilege to be able to do all those things. What were the biggest hurdles to becoming a successful surgical scientist? I would say it's, it was a lack of focus in the beginning. I think it's critical when you start your clinical, your professional career, you have to be known as a surgeon. And as a resident, you, you watch other people and you learn from other people and they're always helping you. But eventually you have to be on your own and you need to focus on that. There used to be advice that you stopped doing surgery and then you did research and I don't think that's a good plan. I, I think it's really important to get the confidence and get the help as you get going. But then when you get involved in research, you have to do it a little bit different. So what I would do is try to do my research between cases or try to do my research when there a moment came, and I wrote my first grant. Well, that grant was horrible. I mean, I should have gone to jail for that grant. I mean, it was really a bad. The concept was a good concept. It was a terrible grant. I showed this is a true story, by the way. I showed I showed the grant to one of my mentors, who uh, ended, who was an anesthesiologist at UVA, but he became dean at Johns Hopkins. A guy named Ed Miller, and so he wrote me this letter, which I still have in my desk, that said. Look, you're a real good surgeon, and that's what you ought to stick with. <laughs> you really ought to give up research. And, you know, that was a hard thing. And I, and I finally understood what he said, that if I focused on research as much as I focused on doing an operation, I'd be fine. So that's what I did. I didn't do my research only when I had two minutes. I really focused on it, and truthfully, didn't apply for another NIH grant for about eight years. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, but in the meantime, I got American Hearts things, and it was real for me. And it's, we're surgeons, we're fantastic at what we do. We have all the energy on earth. If we choose to do things other than the operating room, if we do it the same way, we're gonna be successful. 
great. And then can you tell us a little more practically, how did you start up your lab, um, initial funding, first uh, getting personnel and finding a niche? Well, I went through, uh, I, I first talked to one of my division chiefs and he said, you know, I said, I want to do research, I want to do something that's important, I want to, you know, if you would change the world. So he said, well, you should focus on cardiac lymphatics. I said, why that? He said, well, no one does that. Well, no one does that because it's boring. You know? For a reason. <laughs> <laughs> you know, why God's name would yeah. you ever do that? So I started trying to do things that were of interest to me. And, 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 I, and I went through a lot of things. You know, I, back in those days, we were doing cardiac and thoracic surgery. So I started some research on tracheal replacements. And mm -hmm. that was okay, but it was, didn't really get me. And then I had a situation occur. I uh, started the lung transplant program at UVA, and the first four patients did great. Really fun, everything was perfect. So we, the fifth guy was a young guy with alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, healthy other than this yeah. issue. So we do the transplant, and we're doing you know, the usual high fives. Aren't we brilliant? The guy's done great. The shortest ischemic time was a local donor. Four hours later, he almost died from pulmonary edema frothing out his lung. And he survived, but not by much. And yeah. so I said, I gotta learn more about this problem. So that's where basically the research focus that I have today started. And right. because of that, I learned about reperfusion injury, I learned about lung protection, I learned about a lot of things, and it was a single clinical case that made a difference. Very interesting. Um, how do you recommend residents who are interested in an academic physician scientist career to begin to start a research career and a research lab early in their surgical career? I think the number one thing you have to do, you can't do it like I did. I did not really have separate research time. I made it up in my mm -hmm. own during my residency and it was okay. But I think there's so many good programs that allow you to go and spend a couple of years in the lab and learn the basic things. You've got to learn how to read a paper, how to write a paper, how to present a paper. And, and learn how to do hypothesis-driven research, whether it's basic or translational. It doesn't make a big difference, whatever interests you. And then once you do that, then in, in your first job, that's you negotiate. You negotiate some protected time. It doesn't need to be a lot of protected time, but you need to negotiate it. And you have to be protective of your own time because you'll be able to get, you get some startup dollars. And almost certainly you should start being mentored by a, a good scientist, whether surgical scientist or whatever, mm -hmm. but they got to be interested in what you're interested in, vice versa, and and, uh, and then it's very successful. Right now, I have two of our young surgeons, one a congenital surgeon, one a guy who's interested in our ECMO, and they're both both being research, and they both Great. have different projects. And yeah. We work together, and uh, they're going to eventually take over what I do. Great. How did you juggle your clinical and your lab responsibilities early on, and how did that change over time? <laughs> I didn't do very well in the beginning. Okay. You know, I, 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 it was in a day and age when I was literally on call every other night. Wow. And on congenital, I was the only general surgeon, probably in most of the state of Virginia, so wow. there was never a time that mm -hmm. I wouldn't get called. Having said that, when I was in the lab, I made sure that I, there weren't clinical duties, and I found a team. So, for example, I, you know, I, I was pretty good at basic physiology, but I didn't know molecular biology. I never was trained in molecular biology other than what I took, you know, in, in med school and undergraduate school. So I knew for me to do the molecular stuff, which I had to do to understand things, 
I had to find a molecular biologist. So I interviewed them. And then you have to understand what basic scientists think and do. Because yeah. that's not what we are. Yeah. So I some people and talk to friends and realize what they need. And I found, basically, my partner for my career, a guy I've been with for 20 odd years and write our grants together. Mm -hmm. And he's been a fantastic partner. Then, you know, we always have the fear as surgeons that these basic science guys know everything and we don't know anything. The truth is, it's a team. Yeah. They don't understand the clinical situation. Right. They understand some mechanisms. We understand the clinical situation and what is important in the future. Yeah. Combinations will work. Great. Uh, what do you see as the biggest hurdle for residents today who are interested in a surgical scientist? I think it's one is some protection of time, mm -hmm. and two, it's their own focus. The operating room is fantastic. I mean, I love being in the operating room. To this day, I'm passionate about it. Love every part of it, and it, get, it steals your heart and soul, and you want to spend every second. One of the big issues we have with young faculty is is they do what their comfort zone is. So mm -hmm. what does that mean? Yeah. They're great at being a chief resident, right? So they chase the chief residents around the hospital making sure they do all the right things. Right. Instead of doing, balancing their life. Right. So we have to discourage them from that, trust the residents some, keep an eye on things, but do things beyond just looking at the patients. Many residents may be planning on not entering a career such as yours because of the decreased funding available in the field and how would you respond to that? Persistence is everything. Mm -hmm. You can get funding and I am absolutely certain that you can get funding. And the key is not to take rejection personally. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, I had a situation where uh, one of my grants was triaged. And triage means it didn't even hit the top 50th percentile. You needed that to be at the 12th to get funded or 10th. So uh, it was easy to give up on that. I thought it was a good grant still. And so we actually, they said it was excessive, uh, we were trying to do two so we split it in two and we got both sides funded. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. The point is, is that listen to the reviews, mm -hmm. work with the NIH, mm -hmm. talk to your mentors, and, and, and just don't take anything personally. Yeah. If you have a good idea, it's a good idea. Mm -hmm. Believe it. Do you feel that an advanced degree, either an MPH, a master's, or a PhD significantly helps in such a career, or do you think that in, that in the current surgical era, that partnership with non-medical colleagues that have advanced degrees is more advantageous for the next generation? I think both work. Uh -huh. You know, if you are fortunate enough to have a PhD, it absolutely helps you with the basic science research. And I do believe in MPH, you're going to do translational research, is probably a necessity, but you can get that. Even during, and we have many of our faculty get those types of degrees. I never did. Uh, I went straight through. I got real busy early. Yeah. But, and, and I did what you suggest as a ladder approach. I got some friends. Yes. And you, by the way, science is always team science. Yes. And so that's the point. You know, get as many people you need to help you, talk with them, and add on as you need to. Great. Well, I think that was a, a great discussion of um, being a surgical scientist and your success in that and advice. I'd like to move on to mentorship, which is something that I know you uh, feel very passionate about. Uh, what is your definition or description of a good surgical mentor for the CT surgeon? Well, there are multiple levels of mentorship, and, and surgical mentorship is basically teaching someone to be a surgeon. And I would say, you know, I was able to have mistakes early in my career. You know, we just went out and operated and 
and there are things I didn't know how to do truthfully. Right. These days, you have to be the same as some of the greatest surgeons on earth, and I know with your interest in congenital, you cannot go out and just practice right. without someone hanging yeah. out with you. And so even with our younger adult faculty, we operate with them for the first one to two years. Okay. That's reality, yeah. and that's okay. You yeah. know, it, it, it's, it, it's not so much that they can't do the technical steps, it's fitting the operation to the patient that's mm -hmm. so complicated. Mm -hmm. Because not every patient can take every aspect of an operation. Right. So mentorship is about multiple things. You know, you need to be a teacher, you need to be patient. But I think the most important thing you can do as a mentor is not to tell people what they're not, but to help them be what they are. Mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. Well, you're not what you're not. That's not going to change. Right, okay. The point is finding what things work for you, finding what things that are going to make you better, and more importantly, you know, being honest, but also being supportive. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think those are the key points. And can you describe how mentorship has shaped your career path? No question. I, I, don't, I would never have been able to do any of the things I've done without mentorship. Some good, some bad. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the reality. And then there's uh, many years ago, I operated on this guy who was named Swami G. He was a <laughs> Swami from Woodstock. You're way too young to remember <laughs> Woodstock, but he really was. Yeah. And he uh, 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 lived in a place called Yogaville in Virginia, of all things. Okay. He came to me for an operation, and, and he was an elderly guy, and he, of course, he did well, but he subsequently passed. But afterwards, he asked me to come visit with him, which I did. It was really odd, you know, to show up there with people in these robes and such. But he was a fantastic guy. And he told me one thing that I think is critical. When the student is ready, the teacher will come. Interesting. <laughs> wow. It's, it's, yeah. it's some of the best advice I ever had. And the point yeah. is you've got to be ready for the mentor. And right. you've got to be active in it. And you've got to decide. So the proper mentor for you is someone who has time and also mm -hmm. experience, but not too much time. Right. Because right? if not successful, you're not going to help. Right. And they they got to be honest with you, and you got to you got to believe they have your best interests at heart. They see you as competition. You don't want them. Right. Right. Okay? Who was uh, your most important or influential mentor when you were a resident and in your early career? I had a whole series of mentors. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I'll describe them briefly, not necessarily yeah. by name. The, our chief of surgery, who was Dr. Harry Muller, who was mm -hmm. one of the early Blaylock residents, you know, uh, mentored me in several ways, but I wanted to be what he was, you know, mm -hmm. a true leader in the field. I had, uh, you know, uh, scientific, and then the subsequent chair of surgery, Scott Jones, who's a general surgeon, but he just believed in me. Mm -hmm. You know, and he just made sure that certain we didn't always see eye to eye on everything, nor should mm -hmm. you. Yeah. But he's he's still a friend to this day. And then along the way, people sort of find you. You know, I I don't know how that happens. You know, <laughs> it's like we're talking now. You know, right. I got a call one day from this guy Bob Oplogel. Bob uh, was a surgeon in Chicago, and he was president of STS. And one day, he just somehow got my name. He started calling me. He starts saying stuff, I need you to be more active politically, I need you to be more involved in societies, all you want to do is operate. They <laughs> start calling me at these funky hours, you know, and that guy was hugely important, you know, because he well, made me see beyond what yeah. I could see right, right. In there. I had uh, a situation, I was trying to decide where I wanted to be a division chief. I was looking for four different jobs at the time, and so I had 
lunch with Jim Cox. Jim mm -hmm. Cox was president of ATS. He's been a friend. And that, I can tell you to this day, that lunch cost me $6. <laughs> and I couldn't figure out which job I wanted. And yeah. so he, he, he phrased it this way. Which job, if withdrawn, would trouble you the most? Right, uh-huh. I never looked at that yeah. It was clear what I should do. Yeah, and yeah. And that was the way it was. So these people will find me somehow. You know, Tim Gardner told me I had to get more involved in ATS. Larry Cohen. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, yeah. They find you. And, and the reality is people say, how do you get ahead in these societies? Just do the work and show up. Mm -hmm. And they'll find you. And the point is, is listening. Some of the advice is good, some is bad, some doesn't fit you. But, but you get the advice. You touched on this a little bit in terms of time and someone that's farther along and um, that you can look up to. But any other specific things that residents should look for in mentors? Um, maybe they don't have someone at their program or they, they're looking for some role models? It's perfectly legal to get on the phone or email anybody. I mean, yeah. I, I get that all the time. Yeah. Someone hears that's something I'm doing and I want to talk. Right. Sure, no problem. Happy to do it anytime. Mm -hmm. There are so many people in our field like that. We're a small world. So proactive, proactive. establishing relationships. Yeah. 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 Great. And then from the, the residence um, side, it, mentorship obviously is a two-sided uh, relationship. So I, I think there's one more thing that you need, everyone needs help with, and that's balance. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, you know, we pretend in day, day and age I came up and got on call every other night, but somehow that's okay. It's not okay. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. not okay. You gotta look after yourself, you gotta look after your family. And I'll tell you a quick story about yeah. that. Uh, my uh, oldest son is in his 30s now, but when he was 13, he, uh, he was a tall, gangly kid, barely made the basketball game. And so he told me he had a game, but he was sure he wasn't going in, and I was finishing up rounds or something. One of the senior sir said, why are you going to the game? No, he won't get in, go to the game. So I ran over in my scrubs. Uh -huh. Can't do that this week. No, so right. yeah. I ran over in my scrubs, ran in, and suddenly the coach, God knows why, puts him in and makes a basket. And he looks around to see if I'm there. Yes, and I'm right. there like that. Yes, you know? perfect. And so the point is, is that, You've got to schedule these events. You can't yeah. fit them in. You've got to schedule looking after yourself. You've got to schedule right. looking after your family. And it's okay. Right. It's yeah. not more than okay. It makes you human. Right. And if you're human, you're going to be a better doctor and a better person. Great. Well, thank you on behalf of all the residents you've mentored over the years and what a role model you've been. So thank you so much for the uh, real privilege to interview you today. Thank you so much.